This is the RSM Orthopedic Section Podcast. We feature global experts and key opinion leaders discussing innovation, progress, and current practice within their subspecialties. My name is Akib Khan, and I'm an orthopedic registrar on the Section Council, and I'll be your host on this podcast. Welcome. We're joined by Professor Martin McNally, who is a world expert in infections um, in musculoskeletal patients. And we're really glad to have him here at the Royal Society of Medicine uh, presenting in our trauma symposium. And um, thank you very much for giving up some time to join us on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. What I wanted to focus on this afternoon uh, is about fracture-related infections. And there's been so much work uh, in, in this field over many years, and in your presentation, you went through um, many aspects of using antibiotics and how open fractures used to be treated historically, you know, even millennia ago. Um, but more recently, we've had a lot of advances in this field. So my first question for you is, what is the definition of fracture-related infection? I think that's a, a really good question to start on. Um, one of the big problems we've had in FRI, or fracture-related infection, is that up until relatively recently, we haven't had a good definition. And so it's been very difficult to compare studies or to look at outcome measures when we don't know where we're starting. And so in 2017, we formed this uh, international consensus group with William-Jan Metzemakers from Leuven, Mario Morgenstern from Basel and myself. And we got together a group of people from around the world to look really carefully at what are the defining features of an infection in a fracture. So there were some confirmatory criteria including an open draining wound or positive microbiology using a strict criteria for that. If you had positive histology uh, from fracture samples then you could confirm that an infection was present. And then there were a number of suggestive criteria to do with imaging and blood tests and so forth which did not confirm the presence of infection, but they should make the clinician very aware that an infection is likely. And so further investigations and tests should be performed to try and work out, is there an active infection or not? And I think the, in 2018, when we published the FRI consensus definition, that has really revolutionized the thinking. Um, there are now over 70 trials and studies that have been published using that definition, and we're now able to compare those trials. We're able to extract the data uh, in a way that's really helpful for decision-making. Um, so so it, it, it has changed the, the landscape in some ways. And that common language, I guess, is... is one of the biggest steps forwards that we ha we've had in the past you know, five to ten years, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I think that not only is it very good for research, but it also focuses the clinician's mind on what needs to be done in order to diagnose an infection. And I always think that you know, effective treatment starts with an adequate diagnosis. And until you've got your diagnostics lined up well, you really don't know where to begin. Uh, and so we, we have to start with our sampling technique and with how we establish the diagnosis. I think that, that's important. So in terms of the diagnosis then, um, I, I know that in the guidelines there are various different criteria for what we're looking for. 
And one of the things that you were talking about was how we can actually establish that diagnosis and what samples we should be taking. Mm. Would you mind expanding on that for yeah, us, please? Certainly. So in Oxford, where I work, um, sampling is a, a religious experience in some ways. Um, we, for quite a lot of years, uh, we have had a protocol. So uh, we take five uh, samples for microbiology and two for histology. We take each sample with a separate instrument so that we do not cross-contaminate one sample to the next sample. We also have uh, what we call the no-touch technique, so the surgeon must not put his fingers in the wound until sampling is finished. So we don't touch the active end of the instruments that we're using for sampling, and the instruments must not touch the skin on the way in or the way out uh, of the uh, harvesting of the specimen. And this is really so that we can reduce the transfer of contaminating bacteria into the sample pots. Once the samples are taken, then they're transferred to the laboratory and we send five microbiology samples. In the laboratory, they process these samples and we culture them in a Bactec automated system and then we identify these species using the Molditoff system. And that gives us a very early indication of the positive or negative microbiology. So within about five days, we will get a good answer as to, as to what's present. In terms of interpreting those specimens, if we find the same organism in two or more of the separately harvested samples, then we know that those are pathogenic bacteria. Thank you. And in terms of biofilms, how soon after an infection is the biofilm critical um, in a fresh-related infection? When does it make a difference? I, I think that's a great question, and it's something that um, a lot of work has been done recently, particularly in the AO Institute uh, in Switzerland. Um, one of the things that we know is that there is this continuum between bacteria landing in a wound where they are just present. Then they will begin to colonize the tissues and there they will divide and start to live in the tissue and then within a very short time and by that I mean just a few hours they then start to change their behavior and they go into biofilms and biofilms are really very organized cities of bacteria where they can talk to each other chemically they can uh, secrete uh, other proteinaceous materials around them to protect them from the immune system they become much more resistant to uh, antimicrobial attack uh, and so it's a, a survival mechanism for the bacteria, but it begins within a very few hours and within certainly two or three days there are elements of mature biofilm in a fracture that has been contaminated. And so that then opens up a whole lot of other questions about what is an early infection, what is a delayed infection, what is a late infection? Because in the past we said that early infections were up to two weeks. Because in the past uh, we felt that there might be some difference between early and late infections. But in fact, that's now being challenged uh, as there are no big differences that we can identify. Because certainly once we get into the second or third day, we have established biofilm. So is there any difference waiting for 10 weeks or three weeks or 15 weeks? Um, the biofilm is there within a few days. So we still have to address that even in the very early infections. Thank you very much. Now, there were quite a few different aspects to your talk, and one of the things which I found really interesting was how pervasive a bacteria can be, and the fact that it's not just the biofilm, but actually you can find bacteria in the bone surrounding the actual footprint of the infection. Um, even at an osteon level, you may find intracellular evidence um, on histological slices of there being bacteria. 
So I guess on a practical level, my question for you is, how do we surgically manage these patients? What do we do to clear the infection? So there, there are two things that we have to consider. The first thing is that if you have any dead tissue, and that's not just dead bone, but bits of dead tendon and scar tissue that is very poorly perfused, that is an area where bacteria can live remote from the blood supply. The immune system cannot get there. No systemic antibiotics will ever get there. So you have to remove all non-vital tissue in infection. That is really important. Then the issue is, do you extend that into the surrounding zone of tissue, which may not be dead, but which may have some infection living in that tissue? Now, there are a couple of ways you can think about that. If you think about, if you go to your general practitioner with an ear infection, he does not recommend that you have your middle ear removed. He gives you antibiotics and 99 times out of 100, that ear infection will go away perfectly happily. So. It is possible that antibiotics given systemically and if you deliver them locally as well, that they can eradicate bacteria in the surrounding tissues if those tissues are alive and well. So certainly in my practice, um, I don't go for the so-called tumor excision in infection. Infections are not tumors um, and the, the surrounding living tissue is your best friend in terms of getting that wound healed and getting growth factors and new cells into the area to restore the tissue that you have removed. So it's, we, we try to preserve living healthy tissue but we must remove dead tissue. And how about in a situation where we have a long bone fracture that's been fixed with a plate and now there's infection? Mm -hmm. um, it's a very common case that you know mm -hmm. presents yes. to most hospitals. Um, as as a day one consultant, what should I be doing with 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 that patient when they when they come through the front door? So it's uh, a very good question again, and really what we are thinking about are the principles of managing an, a definitely infected fracture. First thing is establish your diagnosis, and you will need to do good sampling to to uh, establish that. But then there are a number of principles that we know we have to uh, deliver in order to get a successful outcome. And the first one is optimization of the patient. So if the patient has peripheral vascular disease and no blood supply, get an angioplasty, see the vascular surgeon first. You, you rarely have to treat a fracture infection as an emergency. Occasionally you do if the patient is septic, but not commonly. And so you often do have time to address their blood sugar, their peripheral vasculature, their smoking cessation and so forth. Um, and so doing that first does have a big effect on outcome. Then we want to do our sampling, then we want to do our excision of the dead bone. The next issue is if, if there is a dead space created, so when you remove the, the dead tissue there will be a space, and management of that dead space is very important. If you just leave a cavity in a bone, it will fill with blood. That blood becomes bacteria soup within a very short time, and so you're just back to square one again. So you must manage that dead space, either with living tissue or with a material that will kill bacteria. And so putting in a local antibiotic material is what we currently uh, recommend in that situation. The, the next principle is stabilization. So you must stabilize the fracture well. If the existing fixation is stable, then you can consider keeping it. But if it's not, it should be removed and then you should revise the fixation. And then the last critical factor is the soft tissue envelope. And I think restoration of the soft tissue envelope is probably responsible for at least 30% of the outcome. Um, so having good soft tissues at the end, either by closure or by a plastic surgeon delivering them, um, is, is the way to go. Thank you very much. That's a very clear mantra for how we should be approaching um, patients with infections um, uh, and
because there's been a lot of work in the past about uh, periprostatic joint infections, um, have we borrowed some of that literature to inform what our current practice is in fracturated infections, or do we have enough now in, in, in its, its own entity? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that up until a few years ago, we were borrowing from the prosthetic joint world all the time because we had so little data specifically in fractures. So that's totally changed now because we have specific papers on sampling in fracture-related infections, on managing bone defects, on stabilization, and on antibiotic regimes. And I think the FRI consensus group has done a great deal to help that. Um, they, they've published five papers in the last two or three years giving recommendations about managing the systemic antibiotics, the local antibiotics, the, the general considerations of patient optimization. Um, so we now do have specific data that, that is for fractures and we don't have to look at the prosthetic joints anymore. Fantastic. And uh, one of the things I really liked about your talk was the goals of surgery being prevent, promote and protect. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> what, what do you mean by that? So I think that when you have an infection, the first thing is that you have to prevent a recurrence of that infection because it's miserable for patients to go through their treatment and then have it all break down again. So whatever you're doing and the way you deliver the principles, your first goal is to stop being back here again. So that's the prevent bit. The next thing is that if you're doing a big operation, you really want to do something that promotes healing. So you don't want to have to do secondary surgery after you've got rid of the infection to restore the bone, to fix the joint, to do other things. So, so try and build in a promoting healing element to your, your design of the treatment to start off with. And then the last thing is, we've moved now to using much more internal fixation for our infected fractures. And we need to protect that internal fixation so that it does not loosen, it does not break, and it does not become colonized and infected at a later stage. So one of the things that we have done a lot of in Oxford is using high-dose local antibiotics in ceramic carriers. Um, and we, we coat implants and we cover intermodulary nails um, to prevent those implants becoming uh, infected and, and to protect them for the future. And that, that's been very successful. And... Um are you a fan of the VAC? <laughs> so I'm certainly not a fan of using VAC therapy for prolonged periods. I think it's a perfectly reasonable uh, technique to use for a very short period to manage a difficult wound prior to definitive closure of that wound. But there are now very good papers, particularly the FLOW trial from the United States, which have shown that using VAC therapy for more than about seven days increases the deep infection rate in open fractures and in uh, complex wounds uh, up to one year after uh, index surgery. So I think VAC therapy should be used carefully uh, and, and with limited use. I also think that the WOLF trial that was performed here in the United Kingdom has shown that it has no real benefits over standard dressings for the management of open fractures. Now, last question for you. Any last top tips or tricks for, for our listeners when it comes to managing patients with fracture-related infections? Yeah, I suppose there are two things. I mean, the first thing I've said already, um, effective treatment starts with a good diagnosis. And so learning to uh, approach your diagnostic pathway in a structured way, so not just looking at the wound and thinking, oh, that might be infected or not, I'll give some antibiotics, and then not doing the investigations that prove it or not. I think that's not a good place to be nowadays. So we should be focusing on diagnostics. And then secondly, 
treating infections on your own is a miserable experience. So I, I'm very lucky. I have a plastic surgeon and ID and microphysicians who work with me all the time in, in our bone infection unit in Oxford. And that's a much more pleasurable experience, both for the patient and for me. So I think having a multidisciplinary team and building the group of individuals around you who can manage all of the aspects of an infection is probably the most useful thing that any of us can do. That, that would be my top tip.